John 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the linen, strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried in, Aramo in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that, of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, as one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to them, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of God. Amen. Missy, would you pray with me just as we get rolling here? Jesus, thank you so much for the folks who are in this room. Thank you for the story that we gather to declare, a story of good news, of hope, and victorious love. 
today where that news soak its way into our heart, into our bodies, and into our bones, and we, would we know ourselves as inseparably loved by you. God, speak your word. Let us hear it. In your awesome and holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Y'all have a beef to pick with you? What is happening here? What's this? Y'all afraid of me? What's going on in these first two rows? That is rude. Uh, my name, for all of those of you who don't know me, I'd like to start with an insult, is uh, Johnny I'm one of the pastors here. It is so good to have you, so good to worship with you. Today, as you know, we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And I just want to begin with a confession of my belief. I believe that the resurrection of Jesus is the best news in all the world. I believe that today we declare the story of love victorious, death overthrown, and hope alive. And I think it is good news for everything and everyone in the cosmos to the littlest things that crawl on the ground and everything in between. I believe that today declares good news for all. And as we talk about good news, I want to ask one specific particular question about that good news for us today. And that is this. Resurrection is good news. But what is the good news of resurrection for you? What is the good news of resurrection for those of us who are in this room, listening to this message, celebrating this day, who will gather at this table, who will go out there and eat palettas? What is the good news of resurrection for us? That's right. I think sometimes the way we talk about resurrection is we focus so much on the huge news and we can miss that resurrection is also good news for us personally. When Jesus is resurrected, he's surrounded by friends and family and relatives. And before that news of resurrection spreads to the end of the world, before it goes to a small church in Salt Lake City from Jerusalem, it first makes its way to Mary Magdalene and to Thomas and to Peter. Humans who knew Jesus, humans whose lives had been so deeply disoriented by the crucifixion, and humans who independently and individually receive a story of good news. Today we're going to talk about their stories and what does the resurrection mean for them. And as we do, here's the question that I want you to invite yourself to ask, which is what does this have to do with me? In their personal and intimate stories, I think we find room to begin to ask our own personal and intimate questions and hear the good news of us in personal and intimate ways. So the first character that we're going to look at, the very first to explore, is of a woman named Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, she shows up a few times in Scripture, and we don't know a ton about her life pre-Jesus, but here's what scholars tend to think about Mary Magdalene before she has an encounter with Jesus, is that she is probably an older woman, widowed, who ran a small business in the region of Galilee. And at some point in her life, she has an encounter with Jesus. And the text simply says that she is delivered of seven spirits, which I don't know how to think about. Uh, my Western mind has no concept for that kind of thing. But we know she had an encounter with Jesus. 
And it transforms her forever. And she becomes one of the most devoted followers of Jesus. Everywhere he goes, Mary is there. And Mary is a part of a very small group of women who are the primary patrons of Jesus's ministry. Did you know that, that it was women who funded Jesus' ministry? It was women business leaders who funded Jesus's ministry. And this small group of women patrons, they pay for the ministry work of Jesus and they follow him wherever he goes. And Mary even follows Jesus all the way to the cross where every male disciple has abandoned and fled in fear. Mary is still there with Jesus. So she is an amazing woman, a small business owner, someone who has overcome difficulty, who has lost a husband, who has had a transformative experience with Jesus. And we pick up her story in John 20, verse 1 and 11. The text says this, early in the morning of the first day of after the crucifixion of Jesus, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been taken away. And there was no Mary stood outside crying. The more I researched Mary this week, the more I felt like I could just empathize with her anguish. This is an amazing woman who has somehow found the courage to continue to rise and rise after difficulty, after terrible encounter, after loss. She has continued to find the courage to show up and practice resurrection. And in Jesus, she finds someone that she believes is going to be the good ending to her story, that this has been a difficult story to live and to tell. And now we have come to a moment or a chapter where a new beginning is playing out. And she gave everything to that story. And then all of a sudden, here she is at the tomb, and it seems like the story is over. That the good news is not ending in a good way. And so she weeps. Of course she does. What else is she going to do? She is gripped by the grief of a bad ending to what she hoped was her good story. And this kind of grief is dislocating. If you're in here and you've experienced grief and loss, you know the kind of dislocation that it comes with. How it can make you feel alien from your own body, your own place in the world, from the people and the ones around you. And we see this begin to play out in the text, this kind of dislocation. Mary is outside the tomb and she's crying. And this is what it says. And she bent down and she looked in the tomb. And she saw two angels dressed in white, seated where the body of Jesus had been, one at the head and one at the foot. And the angels asked her, woman, why are you crying? And she replied, they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have put him. I love this moment. Unfazed by angels. I see an angel. I am not unfazed. She sees in the tomb, nothing. I don't care. Where is Jesus. I know what's going on here. And then the moment goes on to say, they ask her why she is crying. She says, I'm looking for the Lord. And as soon as they, she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And presuming that he was a gardener, Mary said, where have you put the body of my Lord? Again, I love this moment. So fearless. 
Mary is in the garden. She can't find Jesus. Jesus shows up. She doesn't recognize him, though, because grief is dislocating. She looks at this gardener, and she's like, hey, bud, where's Jesus? She's fearless, and yet in her grief, she cannot recognize that Jesus is right next to her. Trauma expert Bezel van der Kolk, who wrote this really marvelous book called The Body Keeps the Score, talks about one of the effects of trauma, one of the worst effects of trauma, is the way it inhibits us from imagining new beginnings. You experience something difficult, you experience something traumatic, and it sort of locks down your imagination. You can't believe something new is good or possible might emerge into the world around you. And so Mary has this experience of witnessing Jesus' death. She comes to the other side of it. She sees Jesus, and there's no way she can imagine a new beginning. How could you? Her imagination has been locked and trapped until this next moment. When Jesus said to her, Mary, he calls her by name and she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Mary could not recognize Jesus until he called her by her name. And in this moment, she is grounded back in herself, back in this world. And in her joy, she rushes to Jesus. And what happens next has always frustrated me. She rushes to Jesus. She hugs on to Jesus. And Jesus says, don't hold on to me, for I haven't yet gone to my father. I've always thought this moment was frustrating. Jesus just came back from the dead. Mary is pumped to see him. She runs, gives him a hug, and he's like, no, no, it's too tight. (laughs) Get, Get up off me, girl. It just feels like a weird response from, you know, Jesus in this moment. But I don't think that's actually what's happening. And I'm beginning to love this moment a lot. Because Jesus says, do not cling to me because to go to my Father. He's saying there's something new happening. There's something new unfolding in the midst of you. You couldn't imagine that I was alive. You couldn't imagine that a new was being told. You could not imagine that this would be better, but I have something to do. So don't cling to what was, Mary. Something new is unfolding for you. And then he goes on to say this, go to my brothers and my sisters and tell them, I'm going to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. I love this. Jesus is like, I'm going to head off. I've got work to do. Something new is happening, but I'm going to my God and to your God. So Mary, I want you to go and tell my brothers and sisters our shared story. I'm going to the God that you worship, who has saved you, who has delivered you, and who has resurrected me. And I want you to go to my brothers and sisters and tell them our story. You're a participant in this good news now. In this moment, Mary experiences the resurrection of Jesus, and it is her own resurrection. A resurrection from grief and from despair and from anguish. She thought her story was over or that there was nothing left to tell or nothing left 
to give, but the resurrection of Jesus shows us that there is no endings to new beginnings. And that in Jesus, Mary's story is worth telling all of it. Every single piece of it. And in this moment, Mary is sent to go tell the disciples what has happened. And she becomes the first apostle, the apostle to the apostles. If you don't think women can preach in the gospel, you have a lot to wrestle with. I just got to be honest with you. She is rushing to the disciples to tell the gospel. And I can just imagine this moment that her body is pumping with joy and energy. And she makes it to the disciples. She kicks in the door and is like, I have seen the Lord, suckers. Get behind me. The resurrection is good news from Mary. It's news that her story is worth telling the whole of it, that her story is God's story too. And she is now a participant in the thing that God is doing in the world. Her grief doesn't her out. It is a part of the work she is accomplishing. The next character that we're going to look at is a guy by the name of Thomas the Disciple. After Mary had told the disciples what had happened, Jesus appears to a group of the disciples, and we learn that for some reason, Thomas is not there. I think he's probably getting some snacks or something. He's just not there. For whatever reason, Thomas, the disciple, is not there. And Jesus appears to the disciples, has this amazing encounter with them, leaves, Thomas shows back up with the ho-hos, and they're like, Tom, Tom, you will not believe what just happened. And he's like, Yeah, I don't believe what just happened. I go to get a Snickers, and you're telling me that Jesus was here? I don't think so. And this is what he says, which is maybe the most famous moment from Thomas's life. He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my fingers in the wounds left by the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. It is easy to criticize Thomas Presently, I mean, he's forever been known as Doubting Thomas. But for me, honestly, I think Thomas is the most believable character in this whole story. Like, Thomas has just experienced something so wild, so disorienting. Someone he loved, his friend, his Messiah, his rabbi has died. He shows up back at his house, and people are like, he's alive. And he's like, that's not how things normally work, y'all. That's the logical response. I don't believe you if you tell me you got Taylor Swift tickets. No way I'm believing you if you tell me your friend is alive again. Like, no way! His response, I think, is the most believable. It's the most honest. Thomas doubts because this is a doubtable situation. And like Mary, Thomas has experienced something painful and difficult. And so how would he not doubt. I think a lot of us in this room are like Thomas. We are people who believed in Jesus. Maybe at one moment we loved the story of Jesus. At one moment we were compelled by Jesus, probably still are compelled by Jesus. Thomas is compelled by Jesus. But something in our lives happened that was disorienting painful or difficult, and it began to unravel some of the certainty 
that we held around our conviction about faith. We walked through something painful or we experienced something painful or we saw lots of painful things happen in the world, maybe in the name of faith or adjacent to faith. And like Thomas, that experience was disorienting and painful. It made it hard for us to know how to hold our faith together. Many of us are like Thomas. We love Jesus but have some happened to many of us in this room is that like Thomas, we got named by our doubts. Thomas is forever known as Thomas the Doubter. Dude did so much more than doubt. Church history says he goes to India, plants churches, preaches the gospel. Nobody tells that story. They're like, you know, one time when somebody came back from the dead, he had some questions about it. What an idiot. (laughs) For many of us, we got named by our doubts as though there was something morally at risk within us for having questions. As though somehow we were separated from God because we had questions or if there was something wrong in us because an experience outside of us made us begin to unravel our faith. And we got named doubters. We got named moral failures. We got named those people who are outside or separate from the presence of God because we had questions. But what I think the world around us missed is that we are like Thomas. People who want to believe, people who love Jesus, people who often gave a lot to be followers of Jesus. Thomas doubts, but in this moment, he waits with the disciples for eight days. He's a doubter, but he is still present, still there, still with them still asking his questions, and many of us, again, are like that. And after eight days, Jesus finally shows up again to the disciples. And when Thomas is in the room, Jesus arrives, he says peace to the disciples, and then he looks directly at Thomas. And if I'm Thomas, I'm probably imagining that the next moment is like a bit of a scolding. I got it. I was like, I was gone one day, Tom. I was gone one day. You can't hold on for one day? Remember the loaves? Come on. <laughs> probably nervous. I probably feel some shame, like some fear about what this interaction is going to be like. But what happens? What does Jesus do? Jesus moves close to Thomas, holds out his hand, and says, Put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand onto my side. Jesus moves close to Thomas in his doubts and says, Ask away, friend. I'm not challenged by your wrestling. I'm the resurrected Lord. Ask whatever questions you want. You have doubts? Of course you do. Let me be with you in them. Ask away. Hold my hand. I'm not far from you when you were doubting. I've never been closer. Ask away. Investigate me. Interrogate me. Unravel the beliefs that you have held. It is okay, Thomas. 
Jesus moves close to Thomas and says, ask away. Your doubt does not make you far from me. I've never been closer. In the Old Testament, when God named his people, he calls them Israel, and we forget what that name means. One who contends with God. To be the people of God is to be like Thomas. People who wrestle and ask questions and without fear of rejection know that they can investigate Jesus in his presence. That's the good news of resurrection for Thomas. God is big enough for his doubts and welcomes him home. Now the final character I want to look at is the Apostle Peter. Peter's probably the most famous character from this story. And if you've been, you know, following along in the book, uh, you probably know that Thomas or that Peter has been having a rough couple of days. It's like not a great couple of days for Peter. Peter, in uh, the Last Supper moment, what we call Monday Thursday, he's with Jesus. Jesus tells Peter, Peter, you're going to betray me. Peter, full of bravado, is like, no, dog, I would never betray you. I'm your number one. And then a few just hours later, when they're in the Garden of Gethsemane, the guards come to arrest Jesus, and Peter pulls a sword on the guards, and he was like, no, you're not going to take my guy. I'm his number one. And he slices somebody's ear off. Jesus is like, whoa, dude, you just kind of missed the whole thing. Three years, and this is what you do? Come on. Puts it back on. That's not. But then when Jesus is led to trial, taken away by the guards, by the Roman officials and the religious officials, things change for Peter. And he flees in fear. All that bravado is gone. The sword is gone. The courage is gone. And Peter flees and begins to watch the trial from a distance, trying to hide from the eyes of the authority and the onwalk. And he's watching from the side of the story as Jesus is being tried. And the text tells us that a little girl recognizes Peter as a disciple and asks him, hey, weren't you one of the followers of Jesus? And big, bold, sword-wielding, courageous Peter is like, no, I never knew him. Two more times it happens where Peter denies Jesus. And then we come to this moment where Jesus is resurrected and alive. And if you're Peter, you have to be happy and yet also very nervous about the awkward conversation that's going to come at some point. Like, you're pumped that Jesus is there, but also, like, I don't know what you do in this moment. And if I'm Peter, I cannot imagine how much shame I'm carrying. All the men fled Jesus. The women stayed at the cross, full of courage. The men flee, but Peter denies, which is a deeply personal kind of rejection. And I imagine the shame that he carries is so intense. He probably looks at Jesus and thinks it will never be the way that it was because I failed. He probably looks at his friend and he's like, I was that guy's number one and now I'm number 12. 
I denied him. I rejected him. I failed him. I have lost the chance to say yes again. I have broken this relationship beyond repair. That's at least what I think I would be thinking. That's why I love what happens between Peter and Jesus. This moment comes a bit later in John chapter 21. And Jesus appears again, and he creates a moment of personal encounter. He and Peter are sharing a meal together, and he asks Peter one question three times, which is interesting. In the previous encounter we've had with Peter is three denials. One question, three times. And here's what happens. They're sitting together having a meal, and Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter replied, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus asked a second time, Peter, do you love me? And Peter replied, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, take care of my sheep. He asked a third time, Peter, do you love me? And watch this. Peter was sad that Jesus asked a third time, do you love me? He replied, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Then Jesus said to Peter, follow me. At first, Peter expresses his sadness. I think he feels like these questions are probably triggering that shame he's holding. Jesus is reminding him of his failure, reminding him of his rejection, reminding him of the moment that he chose to say no instead of yes to the most important question he'd ever been asked. But Jesus is not creating a moment to shame Peter. Jesus is creating a moment of repair. A moment of restoration. To every moment of denial, Jesus creates a new moment of repair. A chance to say yes to what Peter had previously said no to. If you've ever broken relationship with somebody, then you know this is actually what you need for restoration in a relationship to happen. You need dignity, but you can't be given dignity. It has to be laid out and then you have to take it. And so Jesus creates this moment with Peter and says, you take it. You said, no, it's okay. We'll do it again. I can say yes this time. There is no ending to new beginnings in Jesus. You can say yes to every moment you ever said no to. And guess what? It's you. You did this. Now join me and be restored. Let's get to work. To every moment of denial, to every moment that Peter thought he had rejected, to every moment that he thought he had damaged that relationship beyond repair, Jesus creates a moment in which Peter gets his dignity back. A moment of repaired relationship. Where Peter gets to experience full restoration of all the things that he had thought he'd lost. Not in Jesus. When Peter says yes three times in a row, Jesus reissues the call Follow me. Nothing has changed. You are still my disciple. Come and sit with Thomas. Let's get back to work. There was one final character 
mention in this story. And the character shows up a few different times, but never gets a name. In the first moment, it's like the disciple, which I think is a really funny low blow for him to include. Sometimes it's just called the other disciple or the unnamed disciple, and then sometimes the disciple that Jesus loved, which is also a bit of a low blow from the author. Well, I am the special one. It's like I wrote the book. Uh, and we know historically that the writer of this gospel and the person who is named in this or unnamed in this is probably the Apostle John. He's writing his own story, names himself in this way. But I was reading a, a, a theologian this week named Shelley Rambo, and she said that's kind of a gift to modern readers that John doesn't name himself. Because in the space of John's unnamed character, we get a place to insert our own name. Every time you see the unnamed disciple, you can put your own name there. And every time you see the disciple whom Jesus loved, you can insert your own name there so that you can also ask the question we're asking today, how is this good news for me? As I experience the resurrection of Jesus, like Mary, like Thomas, like Peter, and like so many others, how is this a good news story for me? Church, I don't know what stories you have been told about God, about yourself, or about the world around you. I don't know what stories you inherited from your family of origin or from the religion that you came from or the tradition that you came from. Maybe like Mary, you have been told that grief is the end of your story or that your story isn't worth sharing or there's nothing in it of value. Maybe you've been told that this space isn't a space for your kind of story. Maybe like Thomas, you have been told your doubt separates you from the presence. You can't doubt me here. You can't doubt and know God. That You doubt that's a moral failure or a lack of faith. You're far from God. Maybe you've been told that doubt's a disappointment. Or maybe like Peter, you have been told or even told yourself that your shame or your failure or your denial disqualifies you from participating in the good news. I don't know what story you have inherited or what story you have been told, but the good news of the resurrection of Jesus is that those stories are not true and that there is no end to new beginnings in Jesus. His resurrection is yours so that like Mary, you can tell your whole story and know that every part of it can be a part of the good news message you get to declare to your brothers and sisters or so that you, like Thomas, can know that you have never been closer to the presence of Jesus than when you are wrestling and asking questions and interrogating. If somebody told you you were, oh no. that nothing in all the universe could separate you from the love of God. You are not qualified. You are not irreparably damaged. Oh no, you are just getting started. 
Follow me. We got work to do, friend. Monsieur, this is the good news of the resurrection. There is no end to new beginnings. This is the news for them, and it is the news for us. Take and receive it. Now, in a moment, Monsieur, we're going to go outside. We're going to celebrate this resurrection story. Food and games, and I'm going to get in a bounce house, and I will push a kid out if I have to. <laughs> so I have you sign waivers. <laughs> we're going to celebrate the resurrection, but before we do, we're going to gather at this table. We gather at this table every single week. If you're new to Missio, you are welcome to gather at this table. We do this practice because Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, did this practice gathering with his disciples, and he broke that bread, he took the cup, and he gave it to his followers, and he said, this is the new beginning in me. This is an invitation to participate, an invitation to sit at the table and know yourself as fearfully and wonderfully loved. So, Missio, we're going to continue to worship together. And when we do, I invite you to bring that question to the table. How is the resurrection good news for you? Would you receive it? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your good news story today. But today we get to celebrate and declare over ourselves that there is no end to new beginnings, that our whole stories, our whole selves are welcomed into you, that our doubts, our questions, our wounds, our shame, our failure, our successes, all of it is welcomed into you and a part of the good news story that you are helping us declare. And God, would we hear that today? Would we know that good news for us? Whether we're Mary or Thomas or Peter or any other character or even a character never named, we know that this good news is for us. Would you help us to receive it and trust it? In your name we pray. Amen.